Support for this show comes from Mercury. There's an art to making the complex feel simple. Everything should be in sync so that even the smallest part serves a bigger purpose. Simplicity can transform your business operations. That's why Mercury powers your financial workflows from the bank account. So ambitious companies have the precision, control, and focus they need to perform at their best. Apply in minutes at mercury.com. Hey, it's Sean Ramos from host of Vox's Daily News podcast, Today Explained. But this, of course, is Vox Conversations, where we're bringing you conversations between some of the brightest minds and smartest people we know. And up today, Arthi Shahani. She's an NPR journalist, memoirist, and host of the upcoming WBEZ podcast, The Art of Power. She's going to be talking with Cecilia Munoz, former aide to President Obama. And it's a conversation all about immigration policy reform, and the challenges ahead for President Biden and for a country wrestling with changing demographics and racism and its own history. Here's Arthi. President Biden has made immigration reform a top priority and sent to Congress the bill he would like to see passed, the U.S. Citizenship Act. It's sweeping. It would legalize millions of people who are undocumented in the U.S., both youth who were brought here as small children and adults who themselves may have crossed the border. Biden's proposal would roll back tough deportation laws so that it's harder to add life exile as a punishment for people who've served time for a low-level offense for example. There is an international aid component. Biden would give additional aid to El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras in an effort to stabilize these countries so that fewer people from there may come here. And the proposal would fund so-called smart border enforcement with a focus on surveillance technology as opposed to building walls. What I just said was a mouthful, I mean a whole lot, and I wanted to summarize it in kind of brochure fashion because I was hoping that the conversation we have today on this podcast could really focus on how the proposal came to be and what shift it signals. The priority seems to be to create lines for people to stand on, not build walls. So is the Biden administration in this proposal signaling that the most powerful person in America is in fact okay with the changing color of this country? Today, we are talking with Cecilia Munoz. People in the Biden White House credit her as an architect of his immigration platform. She has been working on immigration reform in the U.S. since the 1980s, uh, which is a long time. Hi, Cecilia. Hey, Arthi. First question. Biden, in his inauguration speech, he made lots of appeals for unity, right? But he has chosen as his flagship policy issue an issue that is easily among the most divisive in this country, immigration reform. Why? It it feels a little bit like poking the bear. I actually don't think it is like poking the bear in the sense that I mean, it's a divisive issue because our previous president chose to use it that way. But it's actually an issue on which most Americans agree. That's the, in some ways, one of the many tragedies of our immigration debate is that it is a very effective wedge, if you want to use it as a wedge. But actually, most Americans agree on the policy that we need a system that works 
a system which can generously allow immigrants in to reunite with their families, to, to come and work in the United States, um, that it should be fair, that it should be orderly, that it should be consistent with our values. And that includes legalizing the millions of people who are here without immigration status. Upwards of 80, 85% of the American people agree with everything I just said. And just to kind of wrap my head around it, because actually I would say that having just lived through four years of the Trump administration, there isn't agreement in the U.S., for example, around building a border wall. There is not agreement about how many and who should be allowed to stay in this country. But what you're saying there's agreements on is people want a working system and people want laws that can be followed. You're right. It feels incongruous to say that immigration is actually, you know, an issue around which there can be unity after what we have just lived through, which is, you know, I don't even have words for how horrible it's been. But the fact of the matter is that the president who just left does not reflect the majority of the American people in his views. What he did was ignite a very vocal, very ugly minority. His actions reflect some of the ugliest of who we are, and that there are you know, clearly people who believe those things, and that's real, and it's loud, and it's just dominated our policy and politics for four years. But it does not reflect where the bulk of the country is on immigration policy, including on issues like the wall. The wall in some ways is a, and has been for decades, kind of a crazy symbol of the thing Americans do want, including pro-immigrant Americans by and large. And that is a sense that it's going to be orderly, that there are going to be rules, that, you know, the rules should be fair, but that they should be followed. And that's the thing that policy has ultimately failed to deliver which has allowed crazy stuff to happen in response. Then by Biden picking this up as a priority, mm -hmm. I mean, what was the rationale in that? Because you were inside, right, in conversations about what his priorities should be. I didn't work on his campaign, which is where the policy decisions got made. I worked for his transition, which was about executing on the ideas, making sure that the commitments that he made, that there was a pathway to seeing right. them through once they got in office. So... My role in the transition was I led the domestic and economic policy and agency review team, which covered every area of, of policy on the domestic side. But that included a team focused on immigration. You joined late in the game in September of last year. Yeah, actually, I started at the transition in July, although I was announced in September. So I've spent the last seven months of my life on the presidential transition. And our job was to take the president's commitments and figure out how to get them done. And among the things he committed to do on the campaign was to send a bill, an immigration bill to Congress on day one. He was pretty specific about what should be in it. He made commitments with respect to what should happen at the border. He made commitments with respect to DREAMers and the DREAM Act and DACA. And those commitments reflect really quite a bold vision. And they also respond to what is an epic, cataclysmic era in our politics and policy. So a lot of President Biden's commitments in the immigration space had to do with undoing terrible things the Trump administration had done. But the bill, which he did deliver to Congress on day one, as promised, reflects his vision for what our immigration system should be. It builds on what we all know about what the current circumstances of our immigration system are. And that's actually really important because much of the policy debate, really for the last gosh, 15 years or so, is about what the situation used to be at the U.S.-Mexico border. 
And we haven't really had a debate about what the situation is. And presumably it's changed over the decades. It's changed a lot. Yeah. 20 years ago, the problem we were trying to solve for was single adults coming from Mexico and crossing the border between the ports of entry, sneaking in, in other words. Mm -hmm. And all of our laws, all of our physical infrastructure, all of our policies are designed for that problem, which is actually not the problem that we have now. Over the last 10 years or so, migration from Mexico has slowed down. And what we see are actually families coming from Central America, people coming with children. It's women and children, a lot of women and children. A lot of women and children, a lot of adults with children, men as well, from Central America, which is further away, obviously, coming under very different circumstances and large numbers of children coming alone, unaccompanied migrant children from Central America. And that's a different problem. And we don't have the infrastructure for it. And so President Biden is the lead in the conversation in the Obama-Biden administration with Central American countries to address the reasons people were coming and knows a lot about it. So he had been in the Obama White House, the person paying attention to the exodus of refugees from Central America and seeing it before some of us have now come to understand, oh, this is actually a shift. This is like a big, a big shift. That's right. In other words, this notion that you shouldn't have to like walk or, you know, ride on the top of a train to the U.S.-Mexico border to get to safety. If you are in fact in danger, you should be able to say, raise your hand and say, I'm in danger. I need protection. I need to go somewhere where I can be safe. My family needs to go somewhere where we can get refugee status and be resettled somewhere safe. And that is at the center of what he's proposing to do. I'm going to ask one more time, just so you can help me to really understand it, the significance of sending a bill to Congress on day one. Just do the D.C. translation for me. <laughs> what does it mean that he's doing that? What's the significance of that? So what it really shows, it shows commitment. It shows that he's, he's a man who keeps his word because he, he committed to do that during the campaign. And the fact that what he gave to Congress was fully fleshed out legislation not an outline, not a set of principles, but like a, you know, bill language, hundreds of pages long, shows also that he thought it through. But he doesn't expect that, you know, members of Congress aren't going to tinker with it. In fact, I think he has the expectation that they will, right? It should start the conversation, not end the conversation. And anchor it, presumably. Exactly. Is there any chance of this reform, however it may be amended, is there any chance of it actually passing? I mean, like, can you can you walk me through the partisan football here? Yeah. Well, that is the big, big question. And I don't know that we know the answer. I'm hopeful. I'm actually quite hopeful that something can happen in the immigration space. But the question is really what and how broad. And this is actually gets to something that's very, very important about this new vision, for the entire time that I have been doing this work, and I started this work in the mid-1980s, the formula for an immigration bill was, if you want to legalize people on the one hand, you got to do something on the enforcement side and the other. That was sort of what Secretary Napolitano used to call the zig and the zag of immigration policy. There'd always be a trade-off. Yeah. yeah. In other words, the 1986 immigration bill, which legalized 3 million people, mm -hmm. is an expression of this trade-off. There was a legalization program, which barely passed, but it did. And there was a lot of enforcement, including making it illegal to work in the United States if you didn't have papers. Yeah, and that's an interesting fact, right? I just want to sort of highlight this, that 
it being illegal to work without papers, that was a kind of modern invention from the 80s. 1986. It has not been a timeless thing, but a fairly contemporary thing. That's right. So the ballots, in order to get the votes on both sides of the aisle, and there were, frankly, in those days, pro-immigrant and anti-immigrant people in both parties. So in order to get the coalition to pass the bill, you combined a generous thing with an enforcement thing. And that's been the model. And every immigration reform really, certainly dating back to 1986, probably even before that, has had some variant of this trade-off. But frankly, in the 20 years we've been trying to do this iteration of immigration reform, we have not done anything on the legalizing people side, but we've done all of the things on the enforcement side. The stuff that passed in the Senate in 2006, Mm -hmm. uh, the stuff for that matter that that passed the Senate in, in 2013, much of it has been done. Meaning like funding for border enforcement, that kind of thing. Exactly. The formula used to be, if you wanted to legalize people, you had to have something about a wall, you had to have more detention beds, you had to have more border patrol officers. Well, we've got the wall and the detention beds and the enforcement officers, and nobody can make the argument that that has fixed anything. And obviously, it's we've caused a lot of enormous problems. What problems have we caused? Well, we have a uh, an enforcement architecture which is out of balance, which like the, the most generous thing you can say about it is that it's out of balance. And, you know, the wall, I think, except for its proponents, I think everybody else understands it's a symbol, but it do- doesn't actually accomplish anything affirmative. And we are doubling down on the stuff which is aimed at the problem we had 20 years ago. But we are not spending our resources on what we need in order to manage the situation that we have now. And obviously, in addition to that, we are all suffering, not just in the immigrant communities, but as a nation, we are suffering from the demagoguery that our failure to create a rational system has left a wide open space for. Everybody knows the system is broken. Like, if there is consensus on any one thing with respect to immigration, we all understand it's not working. The fact of it not working is the thing that Donald Trump exploited. You know, I can barely say the man's name, but the fact of the matter is he wasn't wrong that the system is broken. He just didn't offer anything constructive and offered a lot that was very destructive. My point is, if Congress had done its job and fixed the system, we might not have had a Donald Trump presidency. It sounds to me like part of your message maybe to Republicans. I mean, you're a Democrat. Your message to Republicans, maybe the Biden administration's message to Republicans is, please consider doing something because we know whether you say it on the record or not, we know Trump took it too far and we don't want to allow that kind of thing again. Yeah, absolutely. And look, it's a broken thing which needs to be fixed. That's what public policy is for. That's what Congress is for. That's their job. And failing to do their job has cost us untold harm. This sweeping reform that the Biden White House is proposing to kick off to anchor the conversation around immigration, there are certain people who look at it and say, can you please stop with the sweeping reforms already? Can you stop trying to be comprehensive? Fixing the whole damn mess hasn't worked. It's a strategy that's been tried, this trade-off of let's you know give some green cards, let's build some more enforcement, that constant trade-off. It's been failing over decades now. You know, I was speaking, for example, to one undocumented student advocate, and she wondered, she's like, why are you holding 
undocumented students hostage to some big sweeping political agenda. You know, there is a lot of consensus in this country that the undocumented youth, which are, you know, numbered over a million, that they should be given green cards. They came here when they were kids. They're culturally American, making them legally so. And so, you know, there's a sentiment, a criticism that, hey, the Biden administration is yet again hijacking this constituency for some big sweeping change. Just let this constituency get their fix already. Oh, I think that's entirely within the realm of possibility in terms of what might actually happen. I don't think that by keeping his word and sending this bill to Congress that President Biden is saying it's this or nothing. I think he's saying, this is my vision for how it should work. And if there's an opportunity to legalize dreamers, and I hope to God there is, and I hope to God that it's soon, I don't believe that the Biden administration would say no to that. Okay, let's take a quick break. And when we're back, when it comes to the conversation around immigration, President Joe Biden is trying to change the tone. But what does that really mean? I ask Cecilia Munoz, after the break. Support for this show comes from Mercury. Financial operations are needlessly complex. With Mercury, you can simplify them with banking and software that power your critical financial workflows all within the one thing every business needs, a bank account. And with new bill pay and accounting integrations, you can pay bills faster, stay in control of company spend, and speed up reconciliation. Apply in minutes at mercury.com. Mercury, the art of simplified finances. It's loud, deafening, cacophonous. It's a nightmare. Oppressive. And just what is it that many people think is pretty nightmarish and yet are still willing to shell out quite a bit of money for a night out at a restaurant? Sound is the number one complaint that diners have about their experience. So why are restaurants so loud, and when did that start happening? Is there anything anyone can do to fix it? We've got the answers on the latest episode of Gastropod. All that, plus the science behind the perfect playlist to accompany your meal. This special episode is part of our new collaboration with the podcast Switched on Pop. Find Gastropod and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Cecilia, President Biden wants to change the tone of the conversation around immigration. How? Well, by telling the truth, for starters, which goes a long way, including telling the truth about what the situation is that we actually face, as opposed to the myths about it, and proposing clear-eyed approaches that can actually work. I mean, that sounds very simple, but it's obviously a big departure from where we've been over the last four years. Is it just the last four years? I think the last four years have taken it to extremes. But it is true that, I mean, the big immigration reform that passed in the Clinton administration was all about penalizing immigrants. And as you know from personal experience, Mm. and Mm -hmm. those terrible policies that were incredibly hurtful and didn't accomplish anything affirmative are still on the books. People are still suffering from those policies. You can still deport an immigrant who is here legally for a crime that they committed 20 years ago without judicial review. A judge doesn't have the ability to stay the deportation. So you can, you know, go into people's lives retroactively and rip their lives and their families to shreds as a matter of law. And that law passed in the 90s. 
And I'll explain for folks listening who who don't know my personal biography as well as Cecilia does. What she's referring to about my knowing it personally is my father and uncle were among those who were longtime legal residents picked up and put in deportation uh, under laws passed under then-President Clinton, you know, dealing with the system well before Trump came into office. Cecilia, let's shift gears for a moment. I want to ask you about this shift. I mean, you're already describing it as, at least how I hear you describing it, is President Biden is coming at the problem saying, hey, for the last 20 years, we've been passing enforcement bills and funding deportation and border enforcement, and we have not created a line for people to stand on. Let's be fair. Let's create that line. Let's you know, let people get legalized. And that's a notable shift. And I guess something that strikes me, though, and you and I, we've talked about this before. I wonder if there needs to be like, <laughs> for lack of a better term, like a massive national attitude adjustment. And so not just a tonal shift, but a paradigm shift. And, and what I mean by that is, you know, for decades, both sides of the aisle in American politics, the Democrats and the Republicans, They've had a fundamental agreement when it comes to migration. There's been a bipartisan agreement that aliens, that's the legal term of art, that aliens are overrunning the border, and we've got to keep them out. And meanwhile, you know, if you step away from D.C. establishment politics, you have overwhelming consensus among economists that actually we need more migration, not less. So you know, <laughs> hey, political leaders, you've got the problem wrong. Like literally your fundamental assumption is wrong. The problem isn't too much migration. It's far too little. The U.S. has an aging population, low fertility, they'll point out. Uh, you're very familiar with this argument. What do mm -hmm. you think of it? You're right that the economic consensus is that we could have a much, much more generous immigration policy and be much better off economically. Um, and I, I believe that to be true. The question is really about whether there should be limits and what, if so, what those limits should be. And I understand that to be kind of the fundamental question that you're asking. I think I'm less optimistic than you are about the American people being able to even conceive of a conversation about not having limits to immigration. That's actually not what I'm saying. I don't know that resetting the assumption to be factually correct is it a matter of fact that the U.S. needs a steady stream of more migrants, given that it's an aging population with low fertility? I don't hear that as an open borders argument. I don't hear yeah. that as, hey, let everyone in. I hear that as, when we discuss this problem of immigration so often, even among the people who are for it, it's like a human rights argument. Like, hey, let's take in yeah. the tired, the poor, the huddling masses because we're America. And it's not like a recognition of, oh, this is like, the human capital, whether it's the quote-unquote low-skilled who've become essential workers who are, you know, <laughs> cleaning our, our grocery stores and stocking them, whether it's them or whether it's the tech workers, it's not like we come in as a country with this humility of like, oh, this is a resource we really need. It's not just we're being kind and human rights-y. It's, it's yeah. actually we need it. That's not an open borders argument. Fair enough. And you're right on the merits that 
you know, if it were possible to design the immigration system that most meets our economic needs, leaving aside, you know, what some might think of as more sentimental questions, that system would be way, way, way more generous than what we have now by a lot. And you're right that we don't have that conversation. And part of the reason that we don't is because we, for whatever reason, and this is a a logic that goes back at least to the 80s and actually much further than that, that there's this sense that we have to kind of solve the unauthorized migration conundrum first before we can have the conversation about what should our system actually look like. That's why the 1986 law was about dealing with undocumented migration, and then you don't get to the reforming the legal immigration system until 1991. Americans are aware that we have a lot of undocumented people, and the immigration advocacy community is very focused on that with reason, because the you know amount of human suffering that goes on is terrible and unnecessary. And we're kind of stuck on that problem, which prevents us from having the larger conversation, which I think you are absolutely right about, which is that in order to get to the future that we need, including our strongest possible and frankly, most equitable possible economy, we would do well to open up a lot. Is that a conversation you've ever been able to have with President Biden or or other senior officials there inside? I mean, I haven't had this this specific conversation with the president, but I do know that his immigration team is very aware of it. And it being what? It being that immigrants are good for the country. And I know that Joe Biden is aware that immigrants are good for the country. Our politics are what they are right now. And the you know crises that we are living through are what they are right now. This administration's plate is awfully full. And I think it's pretty wonderful that addressing our immigration challenges is, is part of the mix. I think that's a clear recognition that this isn't a side issue. It's fundamental if we're going to move forward. It's kind of like, I I watch this issue as it's unfolded, frankly, over decades. I mean, since I was a teenager. And like, I feel the exasperation of, you know, we take the set of humans who contribute to this country, we gaslight ourselves about who they are yeah. and say they're a burden as opposed to a resource. And then some people in suits in D.C., legislate accordingly. I'm just sharing that that that's how it feels to me sometimes. Yeah. All while we celebrate our immigrant heritage, as long as we are talking about people who came long enough ago that they don't seem very threatening, right? That's the other element of it. We're actually pretty proud of our heritage as a nation of immigrants, but we don't reconcile that pride with our our, our current status. We're obviously still a nation of immigrants, but we're i think it's just true it's it's been true throughout our history that we were pretty comfortable about what happened a long time ago and and pretty uncomfortable about the way it continues to happen in our lives and of course we we have become who we are because in large part because we've been a country that's been open to immigrants and when we're at our worst is when we are not o- open to immigrants i mean i guess that that's where i can't help but go and i'm not bringing this up cecilia in any way to say i believe that biden's plan is or is not enough that's not actually what to me this line of conversation is about it's that we know immigration is an area so weighed down by politics multiple agendas, 
disinformation. <laughs> and to me, I can't think of an issue that, where there's a greater disconnect between the reality I see on the ground and the way it's portrayed in headline news. You know, like I, I think about, for example, in Silicon Valley, where I'm based and where I've covered companies for years, you know, you meet people who they will consistently point out the power of America is that it's where the rest of the world has converged. And like political leaders want America to stop being that because the folks who came like two generations ago are afraid of the ones coming now. Yeah. Well, when you went through your list of things which weigh down this issue, the one that you didn't name, but which really looms over it is race, right? This is part of our challenge with immigration. We don't, well, in the last few years, more Americans have said it than ever in my experience. But some of our problem here has to do with the fact that many, many, many of the people who are coming are not white or not understood to be white. And that's part of our problem is racism. Can you tell me a little bit, Cecilia? I mean, you've been involved in immigration issues and at least had an eye on what's happening in D.C. since the 1980s. And then you mm -hmm. actually moved there and got actively involved. There has long been a fear among certain politicians of the Reconquista, this idea, <laughs> right, that like, oh, it put in, in sort of blunt terms, uh, the Mexicans and or Hispanics want to take back their land from what they lost previously. Yeah. You've seen that fear there among mainstream political leaders. Well, what I've seen is, I mean, I worked at a Latino civil rights organization for 20 years. The only conversations about the Reconquista that ever happened were framed by organizations with ties to white supremacy. In other words, there's no like movement that I'm aware of. There is a fear that gets exploited and it's being exploited by folks with a racist agenda. And it, it's a fascinating and frankly, pretty tragic circumstance. It constrains our politics. It constrains our ability to make progress. And at its worst, it results in harassment and violence against Hispanic Americans. Has it also affected that that sort of backdrop of fear that, you know, sort of white supremacist conspiracy theory that that is present in different ways and, you know, on yeah. the Capitol, it's, it's sort of in the backdrop. Has it constrained you? Have you found yourself as a Latina woman working on these issues, having to like assure members of Congress, like, no, 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 it's, you know, you don't have to worry. Oh, yeah. There are too many of us. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. You know where it shows up the most is in language, like the, the evidence that people cite, the thing which really makes them afraid of people with names like mine mm -hmm. is the fear that we don't want to speak English, mm -hmm. which is made up, <laughs> right? Because the language acquisition happens faster than it did a, a century ago um, among immigrant communities. Mm -hmm. But when you pick up the phone and you hear you know, for English press one, para español o primer número dos, mm -hmm. that drives some Americans absolutely bonkers because they think it means that we don't want to be American and that we're unwilling to speak our common language. Mm -hmm. And that's maybe the most prominent expression of this fear. But yes, I mean, I've effectively spent a career trying to calm people down about it, to remind them that, you know what, that Latinos are the largest minority in the United States. That scares some people. You know, for a long time, much of my job was about finding ways to say out loud, to communicate, really, it's fine. <laughs> mm -hmm. You know, we're as American as the rest of you. And that what we intend 
for our country and for our community shouldn't scare you. Mm-hmm. And and to people, would that include people who are shaping immigration policy and mainstream politics? Sure, of course. Absolutely. I mean, look at the makeup of the Congress of the United States. A pretty good chunk of it does not understand my community and does not really understand the America that I know. And you can either try to outpower those folks, and there's good work happening to build power in order to do that, and I'm, I'm, I'm for doing that. I'm for electing people who understand the country better. Or you can also engage folks to help them see maybe it's not so bad. And I have been involved in doing both. In terms of the role of media in covering immigration, now I'm inviting you to comment on my industry. Yeah. You've been a source for a very long time. What do you see us doing? And I don't I don't just mean like Breitbart News. I actually mean, uh, though certainly mm. you can include that, but what are your observations about the way that we in the media industry have covered this issue over the last couple of decades? As an industry, the media doesn't understand the country as it is really any better than our political class does. And that's in part because it's not as representative as it should be. There are not enough people of color reporting in, you know, the various forms of media. And it shows. I mean, I think one way that it has showed in the last several years that I really feel in my gut is that the few reporters who are people of color who come from immigrant communities, who come from the African-American community, knew what they were seeing when Donald Trump first ran for office and, and you know, and announced his campaign by you know, deciding that Mexicans were rapists, the handful of reporters who knew what they were seeing and tried to sound the alarm were shouted down. And boy, did that cost us. So the issue gets covered as if it were a horse race. I can't tell you the number of times I've had to debate on, you know, in TV forums or in news articles, People from organizations, anti-immigrant organizations who that have ties to white supremacy. And I feel like I've spent decades explaining to reporters, you know, when you call that person up, that's who you're talking to. And you're not just invoking fairness when you put that person opposite mine in a debate. It's not two sides of the issue. You are giving a platform to people who are racist. And only in the last four years have some of the reporters that I've had that conversation with really begun to understand what I've been talking about. Hmm. And obviously it's not just me, it's lots and lots of us. And so you could you could credit there the Trump effect. Yes, and I you know, it is not a joyful thing to feel vindicated about because it's been going on for a really long time. And so this you've experienced for decades the kind of two-sidedism thing where irrespective of whether someone is actually expressing facts, they're allowed to actually just step up and express fears. I worry that everyone coming is a rapist, even though no data supports it. Right. Or for that matter, I think immigrants harm us economically. The data doesn't support that either. Yeah. But that is, uh, you know, it's an argument which finds its way into the media and it finds its way into policy. Slow down and actually explain that one 
again, we've talked about this before. Immigrants do not harm us economically. I would venture to say that plenty of people listening would double take on that and wonder, is it actually true? What do you mean by that? Yeah. So the typical public take assumes kind of a zero-sum situation, right? That if one immigrant comes to the United States, that must mean one less job for an American. But it doesn't actually work that way because a variety of factors in, in the way our economy works, the, the, what the data shows is that the economic activity of immigrants has the effect of creating jobs, which is why, you know, when the Congressional Budget Office scored the immigration bill, which passed the Senate in 2013, what they found is that bill increases immigration and it also cuts the deficit and it also increases wages for other workers and it has all of these positive economic benefits. That's because it's not a zero-sum situation. It's not a, if I get a job, that means you can't get a job. The fact that we come in our prime working years and contribute so much to the economy pays dividends for everybody. And the economic evidence about that is really very clear. But it's easy for, for folks to sort of live in the zero-sum land and assume that immigrants are taking jobs and sucking up public benefits. And of course, the data shows that that immigrants use benefits less the natives of the United States. But that is a hard thing to persuade Americans of. And you're saying not just Americans, but you're saying lawmakers and seasoned members of the media industry, the press corps. Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. And and look, at some level, they're reflecting where the public is as well. And it becomes a little bit of a vicious circle. I mean, I will say that, you know, members of my own family who are immigrants themselves believe that immigrants are using benefits excessively. And it's not true. And it's not based on anything other than fear. I have a feeling. <laughs> yeah. I feel the, the point of feelings are not facts. I see more people saying that. It's it's very hashtaggy at, at this point. Let's shift gears a little bit, Cecilia. It seems like part of what makes immigration reform tricky, whether we're talking about the Biden administration's attempt now or what's happened over the last couple of decades, is that it's not actually a neatly partisan issue. It's also that Within the party, specifically, let's talk about yours, within the Democratic Party, there is a fairly deep rift. Is that correct? Yes, it's less deep than it used to be, but it's not gone. And what is the rift? This is too simplistic, but just for the the sake of laying it out, there is a a, kind of pro-labor part of the Democratic coalition, which worries about immigrants taking jobs from Americans. And so to the extent that there are divisions on the Democratic side of the aisle, it's about that. It's There are some Democrats who are a little nervous about whether immigrants are really good for the country. And for their part, on the Republican side, there are, as we know, right, a lot of Republicans who are convinced that immigrants are terrible. There are also Republicans. There are fewer of them in public office and public life right now, but they're still out there who recognize that immigrants are good economically, who recognize that these are people with strong families and strong social values and are also often people who come with strong religious values. And there are Republicans who traditionally believe, gosh, those people in the future seem like kind of perfect Republicans. And so immigration has long been one of those issues where the circle kind of comes together. Like there's a place where the left kind of touches the right and on the anti-immigrant side, as well as on the pro-immigrant side. 
And so since forever, the coalition that passes immigration reforms has involved Democrats and Republicans. And that's helpful to sort of think of what you just described about, you know, the concern for labor, which may or may not be fact-driven, the desire for conservative voters uh, (laughs) who may come in the immigrant body. Uh, But, you know, like a person I think about when I ask you this question about the rift, I think, for example, of someone like Senator Charles Schumer Mm -hmm. from New York. He's long been a leader on this issue. And has been described, I believe, as as a hawk as well, someone who believes very strongly in helping to build the deportation machine, keeping certain people out, quite supportive of the the deportation reforms from the 1990s. So there, there's someone like him as well. That's not a labor concern, right? It's a different kind of Democrat. Well, but Senator Schumer is a veteran of the compromise that I described in 1986 of you legalize people on the one hand and you kind of beef up enforcement and make it illegal for them to work on the other. He, he was a member of the House then. He was one of the people who helped craft that compromise. So the kind of the paradigm that we have been locked in for, you know, for 40 years is something he helped develop. And I'm not sure I would make an argument for the time that wasn't a reasonable trade-off. It resulted in legalizing 3 million people. It, it laid the groundwork for a legal immigration reform, which passed a few years later, which was really quite generous. So that's the old paradigm. And he was a a congressman who helped craft it. The issue is really whether we are capable and our political class is capable of stepping back from the old paradigm and recognizing where we actually are now, uh, which is a very different place. And recognizing our actual challenges with migration now, which are really very different. The old formula just doesn't work anymore. Something you did say, though, about that time, it's interesting to me to to hear you talk about that trade-off from the 1980s as it made sense and and to some extent that it worked. You know, I was reading your memoir, which I think is a a fascinating read for women of color who are breaking glass ceilings and entering into new places, as, as you have done. And in your memoir, you describe that legalization, because yes, people got green cards, but it also became illegal for people to work. You described it like watching people be pushed off a cliff, knowing that you can only save a few of them. So it it didn't sound like at that point that you even thought the trade-off worked in the 80s. I knew, which was true, that the trade-off was going to make life a lot harder for folks who did not end up legalizing. And of course, the legalization program back then had a cutoff date. This legalization happened in 1987. You had to have been in the country before 1982. So we knew that there were a lot of people who were going to be left in the United States undocumented and that it was, they were going to be pushed further underground. From a policy perspective, a policymaker like Chuck Schumer, who made the argument, and this is the argument they made at the time, we want to shut the back door, the door through which people come without legal status. And the way to do that is to make it illegal for them to work. But if we're going to do that, it's fair to acknowledge that there's a lot of people who are already here and we should provide them a pathway to legal status. That's not an unreasonable proposition. But that a reasonable policy proposition doesn't necessarily mean that there isn't going to be suffering on a human scale. And I can't name a public policy where the compromises feel 100% great to me. Like in, you know, 30 plus years, I'm not sure I can name one. Mm-hmm. And so I even hear you in that example. I mean, do you find yourself sort of when you're as as you had been in your earlier career, the social worker working mm-hmm. at the Catholic charities in Chicago, helping undocumented people to get their green cards, you know, 
after Reagan era reforms, you were from that vantage point witnessing all that was not possible. The numbers yeah. of people who could not be helped, the numbers of people who would in fact be in a worse situation. But then you shift to DC and you just kind of accept the the colder calculation, the chess game that is, you know, quote unquote trade-offs, the things you have to do to get anything passed. I don't think it's possible through the, you know, the the rough mechanisms of public policy to achieve perfection. I, w- I wish to God it were. I think your job as a policymaker is to do everything that you possibly can to make sure those harms are as small as possible and that the, the, the good things that happen are as large as possible. You know, even our greatest policy victories throughout our history, things like the Civil Rights Act or the Voting Rights Act, were the results of compromises that left huge holes that we are still living with. But I would not say to those policymakers that they shouldn't have done what they did. I mean, I don't really have the right words for it. I, 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 I feel like now I have enough experience under my belt to really understand. You, perfection is not what's available to you as a policymaker. But I do think it's absolutely vital for people who have worked in community or for people who are going to be affected by the policy changes to be at the table so that policymakers can have a really clear-eyed look and what's going to happen if they make the trade-offs that they're making. And that's, I think, the best we can do. It's the outsider's job to make the insider deeply uncomfortable. Is that Damn right. <laughs> you betcha. We're going to take a short break, but when we're back, the dual legacy of Obama on immigration. I asked Cecilia Munoz for her thoughts on the president being called by some critics, quote, deporter-in-chief. That's after the break. Support for this podcast comes from another podcast. The world's most valuable resource isn't water or gold or even oil. It's data. Our data, based on our behaviors, is frequently being gathered, tracked, stored, and sold. These transactions are mostly invisible to us and worth billions. What does that mean for us? What does it mean for society? Join host Rafi Krikorian, Chief Technology Officer at Emerson Collective, for season two of Technically Optimistic, where he'll take you on a deep dive into how our data is being used and what we can do about it. How do we advocate for ourselves and our privacy so that we can have control over our information and a say in how technology evolves? From surveillance to social media, reproductive rights to criminal justice reform. Krikorian leads us into territories both familiar and unexpected with openness and genuine curiosity, encouraging us to remain technically optimistic in the face of big data. New episodes of Technically Optimistic drop every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. I want to talk about the legacy of President Barack Obama. You served in the Obama White House. For eight years. Yes. And on immigration, he has a dual legacy, I would say. I'm going to put it very simplistically. On the one hand, you can credit him or criticize him, as President Trump had, for giving legal protection to undocumented students, passing an executive order that was considered sweeping at the time uh, that his own White House, your administration actually didn't even think they had the power to do, and then over the years changed their mind and decided they could do. So Obama 
is on the one hand noted positively and negatively for giving legal protection to undocumented students. He also has been called by certain progressives the deporter-in-chief. And that title, because more deportations happened on his watch than any other administration, including Donald Trump. Now, I have my own take on that title, but I'm more interested in yours. Having been part of that White House, an insider there, what's your response to that label? That label was actually given to him by my friend and former boss, Janet Murgia, the head of the organization where I worked for 20 years. I don't think it's particularly fair, but here's what I'll say about the removals record, the deportation record. It was very clear in the in 2009-2010 that there needed to be a change in the way that immigration enforcement happened. And it was in the Obama administration where that change happened. So the numbers that that everybody cites, because they were large, the overwhelming majority of the people who were removed were recent arrivals to the United States or folks who had been convicted of serious crimes. So what the Obama administration did was basically say that the old rules for enforcing immigration laws, which was that there are 11 million undocumented people and the government's job is to find as many of them as possible and remove as many of them as possible, is the wrong way to go about it. And that the right way to go about it is to set priorities. And the priorities that President Obama set were people who had just arrived and people who were convicted of serious crimes. And the reason that the numbers are large is because there were a lot of recent arrivals in the early years of the Obama administration. So I, I understand the argument and I understand the criticism. And I think what's fair about the criticism is that it took us quite a few years to arrive at a set of enforcement priorities that would stick and that would be followed by the officers in the agency. I think it did take us too long. I think we were too tentative initially. But I will say that that DACA, the thing you refer to, it wasn't an executive order. It's an extension of enforcement authority because what DACA is, is an expression of enforcement priorities. It's basically saying recent arrivals and people convicted of serious crimes are our priority for removal. And since we have a priority, we're going to name who is not our priority for removal. And that is people who came as children you know, who were brought by their parents by a certain age. So the reason that you can have DACA is because the Obama administration actually developed enforcement priorities. And without that, there isn't a legal basis for DACA. So that's a complex, wonky answer, which tends to be my specialty. But it's, it's, it's also the truth. So, so what you're saying is what Obama did it wasn't that he said, I am now going to give temporary legal protection to undocumented students. What he did was say, I'm going to prioritize the deportation of two certain groups, as you've said, recent arrivals and quote unquote serious criminals, which means we're not going to spend resources going after the undocumented students. Exactly. And that's exactly what DACA is. That's exactly what DACA is. And it's in line with what you've described as for decades, the trade-off. Okay, here's who we're going to give you know, the carrot to, here's who we're going to give the stick to. Yeah. And, and as in the executive branch, you don't get to say, we're just not going to enforce the law at all. You do get to say, with the resources we have, we're going to make some choices. And that's the Obama administration is the first time that happens in immigration policy. In other words, previous administrations, their strategy was anybody who's undocumented is fair game. And we're just going to look for as many of them as we can find. 
And the Obama administration, for the first time, is the establishment of some choices. And and you say it took a while to get there. How come? Yeah, I think it's, you know, the Obama administration started identifying enforcement priorities in 2010. So the, the effort starts early, but it's tentative because officials at DHS are afraid of letting somebody through who would do something terrible. And also because it was the first time it was attempted. They put their toes in the water before they dove in all the way. And I I think it's fair to say that it took too long. I want to bring up one term that you've used, that the priorities were people who had just gotten to the border and, quote unquote, serious criminals. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. We're having this conversation. And, you know, you're the woman, Cecilia Munoz, who's helped to shepherd forth a new immigration proposal by, by President Biden that's seen as quite open and quite generous. That's the context in which we're speaking. Uh, And you're also the woman who caught a lot of heat for defending Obama's deportation agenda back in Mm -hmm. 2011. You know, I will recall to you, and and you know what I'm going to recall to you. You did an interview with Frontline um, with journalist Maria Hinojosa, and you had said, hey, half the people being deported from the U.S. are, quote, serious criminals. And, you, you know, you got heat for that in part because the term serious criminals in, in immigration law, it can include people who've used marijuana or a, a wide yeah. range of very low-level nonviolent offenses. So, like, the legal jargon is actually rhetorically misleading. It is. It's true. Um, and again, as the enforcement priorities developed, the government got better at identifying what I think reasonable people would agree are the most serious crimes. Immigration law, as you know, doesn't help very much because the the definition of an aggravated felony for immigration purposes is way broader than the definition of an aggravated felony for criminal purposes. And, you know, unfortunately, the immigration agencies have to use the laws that we have, not the laws that we wish we had. Look, these issues are always going to be fraught and the tools available to policymakers because the law is so bad are terrible. And, uh, you know, I feel like I am deeply familiar with how terrible the tools are. And I am an advocate of people who know what the folks in the community suffer, who understand that in a deep way and who care about it, who are prepared to lose sleep over it. Those are the kind of people that I want serving in government wrestling with these questions. Because if we don't stand up and do it, then the job will be left to other people who care much less. And uh, I don't like those outcomes as well. So I knew I would get that kind of heat when I took the job. And what I decided to do was, you know, give it my best every day. I, I, don't, re- I don't regret doing that at all, ever. I don't want to beat a dead horse. But just to close the, the sort of the thought on this, close the loop on this, does any part of you feel like, you know, when you go from outsider Latina woman of Bolivian origin, grew up in Michigan. Really, you identify with your migrant roots. You are working with working class immigrants. Then you go from outsider to insider. And then, you know, you're on TV mm-hmm. defending that, hey, we're deporting serious criminals. You're also then, you're kind of playing the game. I mean, you're, you're sort of using the rhetoric that is misleading. So the law is terribly misleading. It's true. Those are the tools that you have to work with. I I said this to President Obama. I wrestled with my conscience every day, which I think is kind of your job when you're a policymaker. Um, you shouldn't get too comfortable. Mm. Um, and you should make sure you feel okay looking at yourself in the mirror every day. 
those jobs should take a lot out of you and they should make you really question, you know, whether or not you're doing the right thing. Uh, I did all of those things. Did he say anything back to you? Yeah, I mean, he he did. And I think he he asked himself those same questions. I think that's what he expected of his team. And, I, you know, I can't claim I got every call right. I would be lying if I, if you know, if I claimed that I did. And I would also be superhuman if I got every call right. I can claim to have given it everything I had. And I, I, I think I have to be satisfied with that. Hmm. A lot of people fear diversity. And this is yeah. in this conversation been talking a lot about politics and policy, a bit about culture. We've talked about racism and unconscious bias. And you know, the thing about America as I've observed it is that this is a, both a country that is intensely diverse. You know, people marry across races and ethnicities and religions all the time, far more than they do in other countries. But Plenty of people fear diversity. And I don't actually, I want to say something that might sound controversial, but I, I want people to just like listen to me and hear me out here. I don't think that fearing difference makes you a bad person. I actually think it's very human. I'll just give the example of my father. We came to this country when I was a child. We actually, we overstayed visas and were undocumented for a handful of years. Mm-hmm. My father saw the diversity of Queens, New York, where I grew up. It was already majority-minority in the 80s. And he saw all the languages and all the colors, and it scared him a little bit. I mean, like he just, he wasn't accustomed to all of this difference. So I guess I, I kind of always keep that in my head when I look at how we're talking about and reacting to different forms of racism. Yeah. Um, but I, I do think it's very human yeah. To fear difference at times. But that said, our country is premised on being the place where the rest of the world converges, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. So, Cecilia Munoz, how do you get Americans who got here, say, two to five generations ago, who are mostly white, to be comfortable with the newcomers who are mostly not white? What the evidence shows us is that the way to help that to happen is to make sure they bump into each other. To make The more American, as you describe, is in proximity to immigrants, the more comfortable they get. In other words, we are much scarier in the abstract than we are in person. <laughs> <laughs> and seriously, there, uh-huh. there's lots of evidence that in communities where people are rubbing shoulders and at the grocery store together and their kids are in nursery school together, that those are the communities that are more comfortable with the mm-hmm. difference. And it's communities that don't have contact or don't have as much contact that are kind of left to their own imaginations about what what these scary newcomers might mean for them. So the best thing we could do is get to know each other a little bit. And so how do, how do you, as someone who is now a policymaker, policy expert immersed in that world, how do you do that kind of work, which is, I, I think, in a way, it's anti-racism work, you know? Yeah, that's right. It's also housing policy. It's also education policy. It, I mean, it really touches on a bunch of other areas of policymaking that the, you know, all of the work around geographies where economic opportunity is present and not present is really about kind of mixing it up among different kinds of people. So there are lots of, as a policymaker, there are lots of areas where you can have influence in housing zoning in you know, whether people are in classrooms together that can make a difference in whether or not frankly, multiracial democracy survives, which is a 
an honest question that we need to be asking ourselves. Like, we are a multiracial democracy. It is something that we are proud of. And we almost just didn't make it. And in some ways, our ability to make it is in question, which means we have to fight for it. And I, I think if it's going to be true that we have to fight for it, and I think it is true, I'd rather know that we have to fight for it so that we can roll up our sleeves and get going. Hey, can I share a little fantasy of mine? Yeah. I have an idea, and I want you to tell me. Well, I want to see what you think of my idea. So I've thought about this. Uh, it's a version of what you said. It's not so much about housing policy and education, which are doing it clearly to scale. But Cecilia, I fantasize about like when COVID lockdowns are over. I fantasize about a national campaign where we bring people to Ellis Island <laughs> and they learn a little bit about their immigrant roots. Because like Ellis Island is the place where you go and you learn, right? Many Americans learn like, oh, my great grandmother, she was quote unquote unskilled. Oh, she didn't speak English. Oh, this yeah. is why she came. You know, you start to learn that, hey, your ancestors, they weren't all physics PhDs building like, you know, <laughs> the, the particle reactor. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So. And and they may not have pulled themselves up by their own bootstraps. They, many of them had help. Uh-huh. And that's okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm with you. I like this idea. Sign me up. So you think there should be a national sort of program to bring people to visit Ellis Island Museum? I think visiting Ellis Island and Galveston and Angel Island and many of the other places that were ports of entry for people, I think is a great idea to help people recognize that this really is their history for many Americans. I think in general, we're at a moment where we're beginning to understand that that getting to know our own history better as a country would do us a lot of good. And it's not just our own history. It's like literally our own family. Yeah. Right? Like, yeah. who are your grandparents and great-grandparents? Yeah. And because they're not so different from the people that you may be worried about today. Right. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk, Cecilia. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you so much. This week's episode of Vox Conversations was produced by Amy Drobzdowska with help from Eric Janikis. Daniel Turek mixed and mastered the episode, theme music by Breakmaster Cylinder, and Liz Kelly Nelson is Vox's editorial director of podcasts. We genuinely would love to hear what you think of the show. If you have some ideas on things we could improve or ideas for guests or even guest hosts, hit us up, send an email to voxconversations at vox.com or, you know, do that thing where you rate and review the episode wherever you listen. Thank you. Support for this show comes from Mercury. There's an art to making the complex feel simple. Everything should be in sync so that even the smallest part serves a bigger purpose. Simplicity can transform your business operations. That's why Mercury powers your financial workflows from the bank account. So ambitious companies have the precision, control, and focus they need to perform at their best. Apply in minutes at mercury.com.